This is Serena Catania, host of OWC Radio. We have tracked down Uva Martin. This is going to be a real treat. He travels all over the world, and frankly, he and I have been trying to get together for about two years now. I finally caught him as he is about to leave Bombay Beach on the Salton Sea. But we have a lot to talk about. So, um, Uva, you are an independent visual storyteller, and your images are just stunning. Stunning. I've been following you. You call yourself a slow journalist, and you're also a multimedia producer. So, welcome to OWC Radio. Let's talk about this wonderful work you have. Hey, thank you for having me. So, tell us where you are right now. Uh, right now, I'm basically on my front porch uh, at my house at the Salton Sea in a community called Bombay Beach. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of people are talking about the Salton Sea all of a sudden. A few years ago, we never heard about it. So what, what do you think this resurgence is all about? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, the Salton Sea is the largest lake in California, the largest freshwater, one freshwater lake. It's like double the size of Lake Tahoe, and um, not a lot of people seem to recognize that it's here. Well, and at the same time, by now it's probably one of the largest environmental disasters in the making in the United States. So it is it is um, a pretty important site. I think it came uh, in the last few years. It started to come more and more into focus for a few different reasons. One is that it really significantly influences hundreds of thousands of people in the larger region uh, with uh, the possibility of like dust storms uh, making it a dangerous place uh, where 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 people have like high asthma rates and and things like that and um, also the eco- ecological uh, catastrophe with it's a very important stop on the Pacific Flyway, and with uh, the sea now drying up because of water transfers um, from rural to urban um, users, um, the sea is drying up, and uh, so fishes are dying, and and the birds don't find food anymore, and so that so there's a real danger of the Pacific Flyway being heavily impacted by that. That is, that's one reason why it's more like in the media now. And the other is that, especially Bombay Beach right now, um, has seen a resurgence of some kind um, because a lot of artists are moving in here and uh, turning this place into into an, an utopian uh, art um, place, yeah, art destination where we ju- we just finished the the Bombay Beach Biennale. Uh, last weekend, which is a biannual annual gathering, so it's it's like a, a wild uh, a festival, but also um, a very interesting um, art initiative that tries to um, sustainably change the community. So this is radio, so we can't actually see this. Describe to us what's been going on there for the last couple of weeks. Mm. Okay, so basically, in the last couple of weeks, um, uh, artists from all over the world came into this town. And uh, when you when you want to think of the background, um, you have to to imagine um, 
the uh, t town that is like part of like Grand Theft Auto Five. There it's like in, uh, called S uh, Sandy Shores, right? So people have been describing as a as post-apocalyptic. You you would think it, it looks like an a Mad Max movie somehow. Well, this is the background in the middle of like the desert. There's like a lot of trailers. There has been a lot of trash, um, but uh, over the last four four years since um, this gathering of the Biennales here, but also the artists are coming here and clean up lots. It has gone from it 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 has improved a lot. Uh, so you don't find that much trash anymore. It's slowly turning. Um, turning the community around and the place around. So instead of like a burnout trailer, now you have an opera house where um, the principal dancer of the um, San Francisco ballet uh, dances and we have opera singers. And so like over the last few months more, more and more artists slowly came into town and have been working on very interesting art um, objects, um, installations, music uh, things, and and the, and it it all culminated in the last weekend when I would say maybe three thousand people from all over the place came to visit this town um, and had a festival of philosophy, music, art. Um, and so, so what's different there is that suddenly you have like all these people, like like this beautiful people from the cities coming in here, who who dress a little bit like Burning Man type people. Um, and so you have like this contrast between a, a, a backdrop of of a disadvantaged community and then this hedonist. Um, hedonist uh, bunch of people like like parading through town so it, it's a very interesting contrast that is happening here and 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 it so at the same time you have like fantastic art pieces that are relevant for the region and the and the unfolding environmental disaster that we have here and uh, and 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 at the same time you have like Total absurd um, things that are that are by design. Absurdity plays a very big role. It's a tongue-in-cheek um, event in a way that makes fun of the art world, and at the same time tries to draw attention to what's going on on the Southern Sea. Can you describe visually some of the art installations? I'd like to be able to see this in my mind. What? Pick a few of them and tell me what they were and what they looked like and who was involved with them. Right. So, for example, there, there's a, the, an art installation called the Da Vinci Fish. It's by uh, Sean Guerrero and uh, Royce Carlson and a few other um, artists. And it's a it's an old airplane. Um, I would say something like a Cessna, like a like a Cessna, thing, but mm -hmm. yeah, something like that. But it's like I, I don't know the exact type, but it's like so. It's like an airplane, uh, and they stripped it, and and basically uh, now it has like wings that are looking like like a fish bones, and so it's like this sculpture that is um, maybe forty, fifty feet long, 
floating uh, in the air on uh, and and like turning in the wind and it's like a big uh, steel and copper and metal fish um <laughs> done out of um material that was often found here or like collected from like the, the fish uh, how do you call it like the skin of the fish those mm-hmm, the scales um, things the scales yeah the scales for example are made out of uh, old uh, uh cans uh, can like the bottoms of cans and so um and then there's mosaics on it and and it has big teeth and and also it carries under its wings under uh, its skeleton wings it carries uh, two bombs because um this area here um used to be used for target practice um so that's why it's called bombay beach it's like bomb a beach so uh, it it has a lot of references it's a fantastic piece that um rotates in the wind uh, even a slight wind will rotate this whole thing uh around it's mm-hmm. very graceful and uh, very um dystopian at the same time And there's another piece by by an artist called um I get I'm bad with names uh, Scott anyway Scott um put uh, Scott Fitzel Scott Fitzel put um glass orbs uh, up in a in a um up can I say again Scott Scott Fitzel um put uh, glass orbs in a kind of a cube like a um in the in midair and those glass cubes are really pure and they symbolize the water that is leaving the salt and sea by evaporation and mm-hmm. so while uh, a lot of people talk about how toxic the salt and sea is the water that leaves it by evaporation is very pure leaving behind all the salt and fertilizers and pesticides in this big uh, ball that is a salt and sink and where the sea becomes more and more salty and um Yeah, then there's 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 lots of uh, um, Shikli. Uh, his name is Shik. Uh, he's an artist from um, Yucca Valley, and Shik uh, cr- created a, a lighthouse on the beach uh, with a disco ball as the light source. And and as the sea is retreating because it's drying up, this lighthouse over time will become more and more absurd, speaking to um to the disappearance of of a place that once has been and so like and and greetings to a lake that that was there just like a few years ago and now increasingly detracts so that are that are the kind of 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 art pieces that are there like the opera house by James Ostra a british artist who which um is um decorated with uh flip-flops uh the walls are lined with flip-flops also <laughs> flops that that he found at a at a beach I, i believe it was in nigeria and so um so you have like a lot of these these things that speak to the decay that you can find here but also to often to the hopes and dreams and bubbles that have always been part of the region of the Salton Sea. Amazing to put a bunch of creative people in an environment like that. So making a statement about what they would like in the world in the middle of 
what is really an environmental tragedy, isn't it? How did you come to move there? You have a place there that you actually live at part of the year because you're from Germany originally, right? Right. Yeah, so, so I live, I'm, my, my, my friend Tara Ruspoli, one of the founders of the Biennale here, he always says, introduces me as Uwe, the guy who's bi-coastal now. <laughs> and bi-coastal in my way doesn't mean anymore like East Coast, West Coast, but it means Hamburg, Germany, and Bombay Beach, California. And so I came here um, because I've, I've been documenting water issues in the American West over the last few years. And so basically I, I was flushed down here with the Colorado River, um, following the river from the Rocky Mountains all the way to its um, final destination, which since the, 19, since the end of the 1980s is not the ocean anymore, as it should be, but there are so many dams that distract the river and, and block the river and move the river all over the place. And now it basically ends at the Thornton Sea um, because uh, about over 20%, about 22% of all the water of the Colorado River that flows down there every year goes to a few hundred farm families in the Imperial Valley of California in the middle of the desert. And mm-hmm. they grow food there or the winter vegetables you get in New York or Chicago or wherever when you eat like fresh greens there in Christmas, they all come from the Imperial Valley. And um, so the tailwater of that, like the, the, the water that is left from the plant, that, that sustains the salt and sea here and flows into this, uh, into this lake that is an agricultural sump. And Bombay Beach, where I'm now, is one of the towns along this lake, which in the 1950s and 60s and 70s was a, a, a paradise for um, boating and fishing and parties. And I mean, we had like five or six bars here lined on the on the seashore. And then um, over time, with the sea becoming more and more salty and and, and you had fish die-offs because of algae, algae, algae blooms. Um, this became a place where everybody basically left, and so you have a lot of abandoned houses. And, and so I came here to, 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 to document that whole water issue and the environmental situation. And when I came here, first it was this destitute place, but then I ended up going to the bar. There's this bar called the Ski Inn, it's the lowest bar in the Western Hemisphere because we are like about 240 feet below sea level here. And um, and I came in there and was instantly greeted by wonderful people who live here. And so I, I deeply fall in love with this place and uh, decided after a year or so that I came more often here uh, to, to buy a place here. Mm-hmm. and make this my second office and my base for over the next, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years documenting this region, which is fast-changing, which will be one of the first regions probably becoming in a, in inhabitable because of climate change, because it's getting too hot to live here. And, uh, and also it's like one of the strongest symbols of this man-made landscape that is not sustainable, like a sorcerer's apprentice. We we created this lake in the middle of the desert, and now uh, no, we, we, we are facing the consequences of it. And, and so it's like the perfect spot for somebody 
like me who's like interested in in uh, the Anthropocene, agriculture, water, climate change, and issues like that. It's like the perfect spot to be here and uh, document what's going on. So you have several projects that you're filming with your partner, uh, Freuke Huber, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of explain to us what is the world of matter, what is land rush, what is white gold, and where have you been well, to shoot them? Right. Okay. So I've been working with my partner, Frau Huber, for the last 12 years on documenting global agriculture. And um, we, we are documenting the social and environmental consequences of growing food, growing cotton, growing energy crops, um, because we believe that agriculture is probably the most significant thing that we as a human race collectively are doing to the planet. Um, it's the largest industry in the world. It employs more people than any other industry. Um, it has um, huge consequences. One of the main drivers of climate change. It um, uses 70 to 80 percent of all the fresh water used in the world. It depletes uh, soils and 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 uh, leads to extinction and so on and so forth. And so. Um, we, we, we are always interested in stories or in, in projects that look at the reasons of, or let, that look at the background of what later will become the news, mm -hmm. like migration movements that, that we see now in the news are very often grounded in, um, in environmental degradation and in problems with agriculture. Um, and so we, so so we are looking at at how agricultural systems can work, how they cannot work, what they're doing to the environment and to the people. So where have you been to shoot this? What locations have you gone to? Right. So the first part of this larger project called Land Rush uh, has been about global cotton, and that that part is called white gold, and. Um, we shot it in five different locations around the world. The first was uh, we documented the, um, the drying of the Aral Sea in Central Asia and Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, where um, the, the lake was destroyed basically by irrigating cotton in the in the desert or steppes of Central Asia. And it created a whole new desert. It's called uh, uh, Karakum Desert. It's like a new desert uh, created by humans uh, by diverting water from the lake to, to the fields there. And then from there, we went on to India. Uh, in India, you have... Um, and since India joined the WTO in 1995, you have much more than 300,000 farm or suicides, and a, fast, a large percentage of that are cotton farmers. They got dependent on corporate seed supply, which uh, increased their input costs significantly, and at the same time, with the rules of the WTO, they, uh, the, the, the price they get for the cotton went down. So you have like this desperate farmers that just don't have a chance anymore um, and, and many, many commit suicide. And, and the 300,000, that's just the official number. Um, that doesn't count 
anyone who had uh, fights with their family before they killed themselves. Uh, that doesn't account women, be, uh, because women, by definition, in India cannot be farmers. They can only be farmers' wives. So if a woman commits suicide and it's a farm suicide, it's not counted as one. So the 300,000 is not a very low number. That's a low official number. And then from there, we went on to Texas to look at um, Lobbock, Texas, which is probably the cotton capital of the world with super efficient, like highly um, where universities and farmers work closely together, which is like subsidized by so much money that farmers in India or in in uh, Burkina Faso, where we went next, can just not compete anymore because the high subsidies in the United States and in Europe, uh, the European Union, basically push the price of cotton below the, um, the production price of farmers in Western Africa. And so then I went on to, or we went on to, to, um, to uh, Burkina Faso, stayed there and looked there at organic cotton, organic fair trade cotton, and also uh, in a country that was the first one that um, brought in genetically modified cotton with big dreams that were all shattered within a few years. And basically Burkina Faso stopped his experiment with growing uh, GMO cotton and went back from it. And uh, we stayed there in a, in a uh, organic farming village for like two months living with the people. And then from there, uh, we went on to Brazil, um, which uh, basically is, is like the, some of the largest farms in the world are there. And it completely transforms an area that the size of like like three times the size of Germany within the last uh, a few decades, it, it was transformed from a really diverse ecosystem into basically a big factory farm. And so so that was the first project that went basically from 2006 till, or seven till 2012. And then in 2011, we started the second part of that land rush project that looks more in food production and um, and uh, land issues. Um, so we started that part in Burkina Faso, sorry, in Ethiopia, where big uh, corporations are buying up 300,000 hectares. It's about 800,000 acres of farmland, pushing away local populations to grow energy crops and food crops there, and um, and basically changing the whole dynamic of the region. Um, that would, and, and then from there we went on to look and why why on earth does it make sense to go to an area so far out, uh, difficult to access, and so on for for corporations? Why does it make sense? And the reason, or one of the reasons, is that in 2008 and 2011, um, the commodity prices for like corn and and and, and wheat and so on went up. Uh, like like crazy and creating uh, food riots all over the world because people couldn't afford food anymore. And the main driver of this raising grain prices um, at the time was ethanol production, um, diverting food crops to energy production and subsidizing that. And so we, then we went on to Iowa where... This, uh, where we work closely with a few farm families that through the new market of 
um, of, of ethanol production suddenly found found new outlets for their for their corn, which before that had had not given them good good returns of investment. And so, basically, with with that, suddenly a young generation of farmers could come back to the farms because there was good business there. Um, before that, a lot of like the average age, I believe, was like over sixty of farmers, right? And and so with with this. Um, with this new market that they found, they could suddenly like bring back the young popular uh, the, the, the young um, folks to to the farms and keep their family tradition of farming, and at the same time push up global prices. And so uh, people in I don't know um, like Syria and uh, and uh, Yemen and uh, Central Africa they certainly couldn't afford food anymore and that led to food riots then later. And then from there we also went and then and when we were in Ethiopia we heard this dream of those investors uh and the government people and they all said, Oh, Africa will be the new Brazil. So they they projected this dream of what what happened in Brazil for the last forty years where this landscape was completely transformed into this big factory farm, but at the same time created like a kind of middle class of farm workers who actually sometimes are better paid than farm workers in the United States. So then we went to Brazil, spent months there, and then from there, right now, we are working on two different chapters of this larger project. Um, my wife, Frau Huber, is working mainly in eastern Germany on organic farming and dairy farming and uh, land use changes um there and uh and we have also been um working uh, on uh, water policy and uh, usage in the western united states over the last 4 or 5 years so i have a couple of things i want to talk to you about uh, when you travel what gear do you take with you because you're going into some difficult regions I'm assuming you can't take a lot of gear with you. What are you shooting with? Because, um, Uwe, these images are as beautiful as anything I've seen on National Geographic. They're, they're gorgeous. And I, I want to encourage people to go, for example, to your Instagram account. It's U-W-E-H, Amazon Mother, A-R-T-I-N as in Nancy, Uwe Martin on Instagram. Beautiful images there. And then the, the Bombay Flying Club is... Uh, it's uh, bombayfc.com. But I, I'm curious about how do you travel and what do you take with you to, to capture this? There's stills and video, I'm assuming, right? Right. So, so we, we have always been working in a combination of film and photography. We are both, like my wife and I, we are both um, originally photographers. And with like internet coming up and, and bandwidth starting to, to, to be better to be used, we became part of, of this multimedia movement. Multimedia is this crazy term that nobody knows what it really is. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But, um, but anyway, so it was like the big shit uh, back in like 2005, 6, 7, 8. And, um, and that's when the Bombay Flying Club uh, got started. So that's our collective. Um, we are six um, filmmakers, photographers, storytellers from Europe um, and uh, collectively work on web documentaries and and short films and so on. Um, and so we, coming from this background in photography, we slowly started to experiment with 
um, with film when it became available. So like like the Canon 5D Mark II, and, uh, uh, that is how it started. But right now, um, I'm I'm personally using um, two different cameras for stills and for, for for filming because they have they they work differently for me. So I use the Leica N camera, like like M10, uh, for photography, which has some of the most beautiful lenses that are around in the world, and which is a very small camera, so I can be um, relatively, I can keep a relatively low profile, and mm-hmm. I and that that is also important for me. In in when I when I shoot film, I want to have a very low profile. Um, so uh, I'm I'm working with a, a GH5 um, Panasonic GH5, and uh, just have like a little sound recorder, Mix Pre Three from Sound Devices. Um, I have a little like stereo microphone, um, uh, Rode, uh, the Rode Stereo Mic X, which I think mm-hmm. is absolutely phenomenal mm-hmm. and gives like an amazing sound quality, even with this small setup, like this tiny camera. And, uh, and then I have like a, uh, like lavalier microphones and stuff like that. So, so it's like a very small, small stuff that even if, I'm going alone, uh, and that is what most of the times uh, Frauke and I are doing. We we sometimes uh, go together, um, but uh, most of the times we are working alone, like one-person teams, because that guarantees like the intimacy that we would probably not get when mm-hmm. we would be going with a larger team. Right, and I so agree with that, you. I'm, I'm just, yeah, that's that's very important. Anyway, I don't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, so so I'm basically often like the dude who's standing like in the corner with like this tiny equipment, you know. It's uh, and, and and people don't even recognize I'm there. And 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 one one and that's that's very important for me and and or for us and and all we do. Um, we have a very different approach than most uh, people in the media. Um, so that is why why we call ourselves slow journals because we we are more like uh, I would say like visual anthropologists. We stay very long time in one place and often return to the same people and story year after year after year. Um, so, for example, like the, the people we work with in Iowa, we have been starting in 2013 and now going have been there three times and now going back again to 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 build on that so we we spent with the same family we spent like two three months just to to be there and become part of the life and 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 see and 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 look at what is there because we come from this photojournalist um ethics of not really changing things i mean not setting absolutely them up, obviously Obviously, you always right. I mean, you you always change things by being there. Right. That's that's clear. I mean, it's not objective in any way. Um, but uh, we 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 come from this this background, and so we we use that same background in filmmaking. So very often, we use the camera as a kind of a research tool and sense maker. So we 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 have an idea of the general story or theme there, but then the actual things develop while we are on the ground. So we never work with kind of like a script or 
or anything like that, but rather just spend time and learn from from the situation. So how are you managing your media when you're in the field? Um, What do you take with you to store your media, to trans, how do you transfer the media? I mean, what kind of equipment are you using for, uh, I would say, the prep for post-production? Uh, that's a that's a constant nightmare. Um, <laughs> I know. I I go through it myself. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> right. So so I, I would normally would travel with like a, a, a MacBook and two two um, two gigabyte uh, hard drives and like like um, how you call it like Thunderbolt hard drives mm-hmm. and uh, no terror. Two terabyte, two two terabyte, not two gigabytes. <laughs> <What's the laughs> um, and uh, because because I mean now we're shooting like shooting like 4K ten uh, bit Im- uh, uh, things, so it's basically like like even like two two terabyte or four terabyte, it's just nothing anymore. So so we uh, like we we bought the like after the GH4 that was still okay with the two terabyte. Now we bought the new camera, so now. The, um, the the GH5 um, now it's it's our our hard drives are not enough anymore and it's difficult to get small hard drives that are larger so basically the, the storage capacity can't um, keep up with with the wonderful equipment we have and now. you can't upload the media everybody says well why don't you put it in the cloud that's not so easy when you're in the middle of Nigeria or some strange you know. You don't even have electricity half the time. I know I have to charge with solar uh, right. when I'm out in the field a lot of times, and there's just no way to upload. There's no internet in many of well, these places, right? But, but even if, right, but even if there is, I mean, I'm now in California, but uh, I mean, try uploading two terabyte of data. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's like, Absolutely, it's <laughs> mean, ridiculous. I mean, yeah. it's like it's not, it's not even feasible for my office in Germany. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not not feasible to to upload everything into cloud. I think it's it's a cool idea. Maybe with five G we will get there. But right now, I think it's just like an illusion. It's frustrating. It's very frustrating for me because people are constantly saying, "Well, why don't you just put it in the cloud?" And they don't understand. It's just not possible yet, unless you have a T one line, which we don't. So, how are right. you distributing this? You're doing some beautiful stories on Instagram. Um, how are you getting this out into the world so people can see this wonderful work? Right. So, so, so what 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 we always trying to do is basically build a bridge between many different usages, and it starts normally with um, doing a story for a print magazine, um, like like the Spiegel or, or Geo magazine in Germany or um, newspapers, and so. So that guarantees that we reach many people with the story that is a written text and some images, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, so so that reaches um, I don't know like half a million or a million people um, in in the, that they can read the article. The second thing we are always doing is, um, but 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 the reading time and like the complexity of an article in a magazine is. is Unless it's like something like the New Yorker, or so but it's not very high. So you basically treat um, the reach for many people with um, a way of like a little bit simplifying the complexity of the issues at hand. And and I'm very well 
very aware of that, but but that's the way where you do it in the media, right? You have to be the, kind of like the translator between all the experts and all the people um, we we interview and live with, who who know every in and out of the complexity of their stories, and the general public who doesn't know anything about it or mm-hmm. very little. And so and so that that's always the first step. And then we we also um, do uh, normally a web documentary which is like an online scroll story or something like that, that often is much longer, that adds to the text and pictures. It adds filmic elements uh, where you have like video moments or interviews or entire short movies. Um, That often, instead of like, say, when the magazine is 15 to 20 minutes, that one is very often like half an hour long or so. And then, then, and then we have our own iPad app. Uh, you can find it on the App Store uh, if you put Landrush project in. Um, That's awesome. So the, the, the first three chapters of our Landrush project are there. Uh, we are always falling far behind and in doing all that to being just like two people who try to run it all and manage it all. So we are we are far behind on that one. But um, but so so it's our own like interactive iPad app. Um, That's wonderful. That I didn't know you had that. I'm going to have to find that and look at it. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I yeah, don't I know an so artist of your caliber who doesn't say, "I'm not. I'm not done. I don't have enough time." <laughs> it's it's a it's an interesting life that we choose, isn't it, to do this? But we're driven. I mean, we have we have stories that we want to tell. That I believe, in your case, for example, you're meant to do this. This is your your life's project, and I I don't know what we can do to help you, but I want to encourage everybody to go to your various sites and to check your work out and to I mean, what can we do to help you, Uve? What do you need that you don't have besides <laughs> a T one line? Like everybody, yeah. <laughs> yeah, money and time. I know that one really well. <laughs> yeah, no. So basically, uh, let let me let me just uh, the. the can I can I come back to to how else we distribute it? Because sure, absolutely. The, Sorry, uh, I interrupted because you. The, the most the most important thing I, I haven't said yet. Oh, that go is ahead. Like over the last few years, um, we have become more and more interested in doing exhibitions, and so what we do there is like it's like five, it's like like multi-channel installation works in art spaces. So we we like just now like last week we opened an exhibition here in Bombay Beach, uh, building an entire cinema in my garage here, um, that that has two uh, full screen cinema screens and a few monitors, um, at a total of five uh, channels, and and so instead of having like a classical documentary linear movie, what we are doing here is we work with kind of like a fragmented narration that the audience builds themselves by looking at all the different edited short films and interviews and and scenes and basically learning through the many channels that are simultaneously going on, getting a sense of how it is all connected, how the fishermen in the in the delta of the Colorado that don't have water anymore are connected to the rancher in the Rocky Mountains and to to the the, the to 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 the casinos in Las Vegas and in a normal documentary 
you you have to take people by the hand and 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 guide them through and in a way we are doing it um it's more driven by the audience itself who makes those connections um through a spatial experience experience mm-hmm. and that is something that that then uh, when when we have like the magazine for like 15 minutes and the, the web documentary that takes 30 minutes to see this experience is take somewhere between two hours and two or three days if you want to see the whole project and so that is where where we go very very deep and 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 it's the most challenging and and most exciting form that we that we work with at the moment so tell us again where these exhibits are well they 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 have been shown partly as 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 a world of matter project in in places like minneapolis and uh and new york and uh dortmund germany and many other locations um in in big galleries or museums but uh, now we are showing them also in my own cinema that i'm creating at uh, the salt and sea here in bombay beach it's not permanently here yet, but uh, I'm building a, a campus to teach photography and filmmaking and bring the community together, and uh, and and we are showing this kind of stuff here. So it, it it's it, it on our website you find out when we when we will have a new one. The next the, the main thing coming up in 2020 we will have an exhibition in uh, Luxembourg in Europe where for the first time we will be able to bring all chapters of Landrush together in one huge exhibition. Oh, I want to see that. So tell us where we can go on the internet to find out more about you. So that's uh, landrushproject.com. Okay. So Landrush, it's like the gold rush and then project.com. Landrushproject.com. I've been speaking with yeah. Uwe Martin, an amazing filmmaker, artist, sociologist, uh, anthropologist. I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing for people around the world. These are very important projects, and uh, I wish you all the best, and thank you for taking time today. It's been wonderful talking with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, yeah, check it out, and check out the Bombay Flying Club, and if you have a lot of time, check out World of Matter Project, which is another huge endeavor, endeavor we have been part of. That's wonderful. This is Serena Catania. I've been talking with Uwe Martin for OWC Radio. Remember what I always tell you guys, get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today. Thanks for listening.